Good morning. Uh, welcome to the week no one has been waiting for. Gluttony. Uh, it's, a, it's a joy to be up here today and to talk about this with you guys. Uh, gluttony is the forgotten sin. It's the one we love to forget, actually, as we belly up to the church potluck or the Super Bowl party or whatever it might be. It's the thing that we love to sweep under the rug. And, and here's the deal. Um, for some of us in the room, we might just automatically dismiss ourselves from this conversation. We might make some assumptions about this sin and decide that it's not pertinent to us. It's, it's not part of who we are, and so we don't need to think about it. For others of us, this might hit too hard. It might feel like a sharp jab. And, and so here's, here's my encouragement for those of you who might be tempted to feel this in a painful way. Um, here's something that I think we do, especially in our day and age, is we start to build fences. Whenever we're in a painful or difficult moment, we start to build fences. And the first fence that we build is offense. <laughs> we take offense at things. And we throw up our hands and, and we say, how dare you? You don't know me. You don't know my story. You can't speak to this. You don't know anything about my life. And, and so therefore, I'm not going to take you seriously. And because we're offended, we dismiss ourselves from the conversation. The second fence we build is defense. And because we're offended, now we start to defend ourselves. You don't know what it's like to be me. Well, that works for you, but that's not my story. You don't know what it's like to be in my shoes. My case is different, and we start building a defense because the sharp jab of truth may have poked through the hard exterior that we've presented. And we'll look for something in the communicator or the deliverer of the message to tear down, and we begin to build a justification through degradation. So here's my plea, not just in this sermon, but in all of our sermons on these sins. Don't build fences. Listen simply to the word of God, receive it, and let's grow together. This morning, we're talking about gluttony. And so here's how the sermon will, will work today. We'll ask these three questions. What is gluttony? Why is it deadly? How does it kill us? And then how do we kill it? How do we wreck our sin before our sin wrecks us? Gluttony is simply overindulgence. It is seeking to find a source in a limited supply. Now, gluttony isn't just about food. You can be gluttonous in all kinds of areas, in entertainment or sex or social media or information or leisure or alcohol. The list can go on and on, but the focus is food most often because it's the one that gets a pass. See, in all the things I just read off on this list, even our culture at large would agree those things are wrong in excess. And Tiger Woods came into trouble several years ago and admitted to a sex addiction. Everyone in the world said, yeah, buddy, you're overindulging. That's not good. That's not healthy. When, when Henry Ruggs got in his car several nights ago and drove 156 miles an hour at twice the legal limit of alcohol within his body, all of us in the world said, yeah, that's wrong. But food is something we don't look at each other and say, hey, man, that's probably a little much. It's also the way the Bible most frequently talks about this idea of gluttony. Gluttony is, in the Bible is overindulgence, but specifically in food and drink. And most often the sin of gluttony is condemned within a list of other sins that include things like laziness and drunkenness. It speaks to a lifestyle that is not pursuant of God-sized dreams or ambitions. It's crippled by inconsistency and irreverence. It's here in that kind of habitual lifestyle that gluttony finds and makes its home. It leads to a permissiveness towards other vices. 
What's startling that gluttony in our culture isn't just tolerated or accepted, it's sometimes celebrated. If you're a fan of, of the show Parks and Recreation, anybody seen that show in here today? Fan of the show Parks and Rec? All four of you. Great, you're going to love this next part. <clears throat> uh, main character Leslie Nope is a, uh, a city government worker, and she fights an uphill battle in every single episode against the very aloof townspeople and also the other members of the city government. Let's check out this clip together. Miss Pinewood, recently many of the local restaurants have changed their small size option to a whopping 64 ounces. That's correct. And it's great for the consumer. More bang for the buck. Are we putting bargains on trial here? How could any sane person call that small? Well, if the customer truly wants a smaller size, there is an option. Oh, do you mean the little swallow? Does anybody buy that? Some girls buy them for their dollhouses, but they're not very popular. I mean, for only a nickel more, you get 64 ounces. Well, uh, Ponchburger just recently came out with a new 128 ounce option. <laughs> Most people call it a gallon, but they call it the regular. <laughs> then there is a horrifying 512 ounce version that they call child size. How is this a child size soda? Well, it's roughly the size of a two-year-old child <laughs> if the child were liquefied. It's a real bargain at 159. I'm sorry, Miss Pinewood, but why would anybody need this much soda? It's not my place to speak for the consumer, but everyone should buy it. <laughs> so the, the entire show is a caricature. It's intentionally over the top, but if we're being honest, that's not that far off base. It's really not out of bounds if we're thinking about it clearly. A child-sized soda is something that we might sit here and laugh at, but the amount of things that we now consume in our culture is startling. Gluttony is not a weight issue, it's a worship issue. The early church father Augustine says this, my love is my gravity. My love is my gravity. What we love functions like gravity that holds us in orbit around it. It pulls, its, it pulls us to itself and holds us in these patterns of living. And in our society, we worship food. Food is enjoyable. It's part of God's good world. It's the foundation of some of our most favorite things, gatherings like Thanksgiving and Christmas, in which we often sit down at a table with people that we love and enjoy food with each other. Food's essential to our existence. You can't live if you don't eat. The issue here is not food. Food is good. Food is created for our, for our enjoyment. The issue here is when we allow a good thing to become an ultimate thing. When we allow the good thing to take God's place in our lives. Then it becomes the object of our worship and has a gravity that pulls us into it. Tim Keller defines gluttony this way. Gluttony is taking something good, something necessary, and cramming it in until we're sick of it, until we're ready to explode. Gluttony is a, is a shortcut we try to take to satisfaction. You can drink a milkshake in three minutes. Believe me, I have. It's amazing. And you'll feel a sugar rush instantly. It provides a cheap and short-lived high, but by nature, satisfaction isn't temporary. Yet we try all these attempts and means to find faint imitations of satisfaction, if only for a few moments. At the heart of the issue, we have disordered desires. Rather than longing for God's presence and finding ourselves satisfied in Him, we long for an entire pizza. 
that will take away our sorrow and fill our emptiness. So how does it kill me? How does gluttony kill us? What are the ways that it wrecks us? The first way is this. Gluttony supplants God as supreme. Gluttony supplants God as supreme. Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 7. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. As part of God's good creation, food reminds us that we are not self-sufficient. We depend on something outside of us for life. Gluttony is when we look to the supply of food to find sufficiency rather than the source of it. It is where we try to fill the lack, the void within our souls by overfilling our stomachs. God expects and demands our worship, but not as a tyrant, as a loving father who knows what's best for you, who created you, who wired you up, and he knows our bent toward lesser things. He knows how they will corrupt us and confuse us and how our sinful longings, even even when satisfied, will leave us feeling more empty and destitute than we were to begin with. God himself functions rightly as our center. He has in himself the ability to satisfy. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, talking about people who are given to gluttony and other treacherous sins. He says they are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and think only about life on this earth. Your love is your gravity, and we need a gravity toward God. We we need to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because it is what is best for us. Psalm 1 says that the man who is in God's word, satisfied fully in him, is like a tree that's planted by a stream of water who bears fruit in season and flourishes in all that he does. We flourish because we are in fellowship with him, rightly oriented in worship and caught up in his gravity. It holds us together. But gluttony presents the chief end of man as a well-stocked table and a stomach well-filled. Hunger becomes the great enemy, and the refrigerator stands now as the great deliverer. You may have not ever considered it this way, but chasing that truth too far down the rabbit hole will lead to a denial of the cross and of Jesus himself, because he is our only deliverer. The rhythm of hunger and satisfaction we experience in our stomach is a dramatization of the relationship between God and our very existence. We are dependent upon him. And when we find ways to satisfy all of our longings with no need for him, we are divorcing ourselves from the God we claim to love. By treating food as an end in and of itself, gluttony ruins our appetite for fellowship with our creator. It exchanges the glory of an immortal God for a ham sandwich and a bag full of kettle chips. Now, I said earlier, gluttony isn't a weight issue, but it is, just not in the way that you think. The weight of the pressure of this world that leads to sadness and sickness and and despair and depression and insecurity and being overwhelmed and afraid and worried and lonely, it sits like a weight on our chest. And we have a tendency to go to things that we love in order to help alleviate that weight. Gluttony begs us to find relief from this weight in overindulgence. You've probably heard the phrases, I'm just going to eat my feelings, (laughs) Or these are some comfort foods. And when we find ourselves in these states, when we try to find solace and overindulgence, we will always feel empty again. 
Gluttony is treating every engagement with food as if it were a feast, not just meeting the need of hunger, but filling the hole of longing. Only Jesus himself truly satisfies us, and when we offload that desire onto lesser things, we will never find the satisfaction that we so desperately seek. Self-indulgence is never satisfied. As one author puts it, he says this, it's never content to settle down with our sweet tooth and maybe have a couple kids. It's always itching to travel, to meet foreign vices and lands beyond the sea. If we abandon ourselves to whatever our stomachs crave, we shouldn't be surprised to find other sinful indulgences in our lives as well. Second way that gluttony kills us, the way it wrecks our life, is gluttony slights my neighbor and steals from him. Gluttony, especially in the Bible, is often tied with injustice. Our appetites have social consequences. Gluttony insists on the satisfaction of bodily cravings even when someone else has to go hungry as a result. Inequity is the currency of gluttony. According to Eleanor Cummins, a journalist for Slate, speaking about the United Nations, she says this, an estimated 815 million people are going hungry at the same time that more than 700 million people, including more than 100 million children, are obese. According to the National League of Cities, they say, in addition to its serious health consequences, obesity has real economic costs that affect all of us. The estimated annual health care costs of obesity-related illnesses are a staggering $190.2 billion, or nearly 21% of the annual health care costs in the United States. For a group of people whose leaders say to love your neighbor as yourself is nearly on the same plane as loving God himself. Friends, we're missing the mark. For there to be that many hungry people in the world. Jesus talks about it this way. He tells a story in Luke chapter 16. It's called the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And You may not have heard it before, but Jesus begins to tell a story of a very wealthy man who was dressed in purple. That's a way of signifying wealth in the ancient world. In fine linen, he was clothed every day, and he lived every day in luxury, never lacking anything, always having an abundance. And just outside his home sat a man who was diseased and had sores all over his body and was homeless, and no one was there to take care of them. His name was Lazarus, and the text says that the dogs would come to lick his sores every day. What that's saying is no humans would touch him. He was forgotten. And Jesus continues the story by, by saying that La, the, this rich man who ignored Lazarus one day dies and, and finds himself in hell. Lazarus had also died and he's now in heaven and the rich man can see Lazarus, this poor man that he ignored in heaven. And here he is in anguish, this rich man. And he begs Abraham to simply have Lazarus dip his finger in some water and place it on his tongue, and that way it will alleviate some of the pain that he's experiencing. And here's the response. Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. 
And Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, if someone is sent to them from the dead right now, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. And Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Friends, God and his word are gravely concerned with the inequity of the world, with starving people, with people who are living in a state of poverty. It matters to Jesus how you live. Now, we've all been in the room as a child where your aunt, you know, you're sitting down for a meal and you try to get up from the table and there's some food still left on your plate and, and your aunt kind of looks at you and says, you know, there are kids in Africa who don't get to eat food like you do. Okay, Karen, okay. Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the bottom line, it, it doesn't matter to a child who's starving in Africa whether I finish the food that's already prepared on my plate. Uh, even if you box this up, Amazon couldn't get it there in time before it spoils. It's the wrong way to think about it. The wrong way to think about inequity in the world is not to make sure we eat everything on our plate because there are people who can't. Now, when it comes to the inequity of gluttony, we need to not just think about what we are consuming, but what we are conserving. Eating less doesn't solve the problem. Buying and preparing less and thinking about the ways that we can create margin to then contribute to the areas of need are important. The third way that gluttony kills us is it sets us on a path toward physical failure. It's not just the amount of food, but the kinds of food we eat. If we're being honest, in our society as a whole, we are overfed, but we're undernourished. We eat in excess, but not in excellence. Got a dietitian over here. Can I get an Amen. Treating our bodies in a way that does not honor the image of God within them. Do you remember when you learned to pray? Uh, for uh, my household, when we learned to pray, there was just this simple line that we repeated every time we began a prayer. And as far as I know, all of my siblings do this or, or have done this. But we would just begin our, our prayers with, Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Anybody have a phrase like that, something that you start your prayer with every time? And we would do that over and over and over, over again, and then we'd launch into whatever we thought was important. Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Please help my dog to feel better, and I'm sorry for hitting my brother over the head with a cap gun. Okay, like, you know, whatever it was. We also had other lines that we would repeat. You guys, you know landlines? Some of us in the room still remember landlines. We had a landline right in the middle of our home, uh, and, and it was in our kitchen. And uh, we were taught to answer the phone in a very specific way. We'd pick up the phone and we'd say, Harney residents, may I ask who's calling? We were supposed to answer the phone that way every single time. You never knew who was on the other end of the line. <laughs> Andrea over here is getting... Yeah, I got some more amens. Uh, I'm scoring a lot of points with moms today. Um, Harney residents, may I ask who's calling? And, and it was a big deal to answer the phone. Uh, we, we didn't have cable TV growing up. We didn't have internet in our house. We didn't have cell phones. None of this. So like, that was the connection to the outside world. And so when the phone rang, it was a full-on sprint to try to get to the phone. Whoever could answer the phone first, like, that was, that's a big deal. And, and so I would turn into Usain Bolt the moment you heard the phone ring. And wherever you were in the house, you'd drop what you're doing, and you'd run through the house to the kitchen to try to get to the phone first. And you could, if you could plan it just right, um, you would hit the transition from carpet in the living room to linoleum in the kitchen where you could run as fast as you could, and then you just slide across linoleum and pick up the phone all in one motion. It was a thing of beauty. 
And so one time, I remember on a particular day, I'm, I sprint across the living room, I slide across the linoleum, I pick up the phone, and I say, dear Jesus, may I ask who's calling? <laughs> and I just, I just love the picture of the State Farm, you know, insurance agent on the other end, like, boy, this fourth grader's having a rough day. My, my grandpa had a line that he would say every time he prayed. He, he would say, please bless this food to the nourishment of our body. And it would often be, as we were gathered, as a big family on my mom's side, my mom's dad, often when we're gathered around my grandparents' table, a beautiful meal prepared by my grandma and some of my aunts and my mom, and we'd all sit down to eat together, and, and there's something beautiful about being with family and eating together, and it's more than just physical sustenance. And he would, we'd gather around the table, probably 30, 40 of us at a time. And he'd pray over the food and he'd say, Lord, please bless this food to the nourishment of our body. But Grandpa would say this for every prayer he prayed over food. And sometimes it was like, Grandpa, we're at Taco Bell. Uh, that's a beefy five-layer burrito. It's not a kale salad. Some of you guys have said this line. Some of us have said this line in a golden corral. And I just, I don't know if I'm the first one to tell you this, but the nutritional value of candied bacon dipped in cheese sauce, you're just never going to find it. No matter how much you ask God to change it, it's just not there. It's like, it's like saying, Lord, I know I just handed my seventh grader a hammer drill and a utility knife, but I need this root canal done inexpensively, so please bless the hands of the one performing surgery on me today. <clears throat> there are things that we say, and we think because we say them, somehow we've done our due diligence. Forbes says this, seven out of 10 adults and three out of 10 children in the United States currently have a condition of overweight or obesity, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. It is estimated that the prevalence of obesity will rise with half of American adults projected to have obesity by 2030. Close to 60% of today's children are predicted to have obesity by age 35. Obesity causes a host of other comorbidities, which we are especially familiar with coming out of a season of COVID. Things like diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, gallbladder disease, gout, stroke, osteoarthritis, and sleep apnea. According to the CDC, during the pandemic, 62% of Americans report undesired weight gain. I'd like to meet the people who desired to gain weight during that time, but 42% of those people who gained weight gained in amounts of 29 pounds or more. And the average weight gain during the pandemic for an American is 15 pounds. Children were also affected with a 10% increase in child obesity, not just the gain of weight, child obesity during the pandemic. And nearly all of this is driven by stress. The misnomer about the human body, the, the widely spread lie that we like to buy into and believe is that the body is a shell for the soul. It's a disposable cup to be tossed away at the return of Jesus, but that isn't what the ancients believed. That's, that's more of Greek philosophy finding its footing in Christian theology than it is the Hebrew scriptures informing our Christian theology. The Hebrew word for soul is nefesh, and nefesh at its most basic form just means throat. You can't live if you don't have a throat. <laughs> Oxygen, food, water, it all comes from there. And so here's the teaching of the Old Testament. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. 
Mind, body, spirit. You are an embodied creature with spiritual DNA that's intrinsic to the entirety of your person. And the physical deeply influences the spiritual, mental, emotional, etc. We cannot afford to think that our eating habits are neutral territory in the fight against sin. Author Reagan Sutterfield says this, My longevity is set by God, but I can affect both my frailty and availability. The three ways that this sin kills us. It supplants God as supreme. It slights our neighbor and steals from him. And it sets us on a course toward physical failure. So how do we kill it? How do we wreck our sin before our sin wrecks us? Well, as humans, we are creatures of story. We crave story. And sin is a story that we tell ourselves when reality wears us out. It's the lie that we buy because life east of Eden is full of pain and hardship. It's hard to bear. And so we believe that indulgence will lead to fulfillment, and so we gorge at the altar of gratification. And we know it's a lie. And yet we continue in the pattern anyway. We keep telling ourselves that more of whatever we enjoy will lead to joy. I think Paul's words to the church in Corinth give us the best chance to frame up this idea of killing this sin before our sin kills us. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is verses 19 and 20. Do you not know? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Now, admittedly, this section comes in a passage about sexual sin. But most commentators would agree that the parallels between gluttony and lust are nearly indistinguishable. That they both feed one another. And no matter what the context is, this idea stands true. Did you catch it? Did you see the key to killing your sin? You are not your own. Full stop. We have to stop believing the lie that we are autonomous, that we are in control, that we can create some kind of better reality for ourselves. We will live in that reality, in the reality that we indulge these disordered desires that lead us further from a God that we so desperately want and further into the depression and dissatisfaction that we already feel. If sin is a story that we tell ourselves, we need to tell ourselves a better story. You are not your own. But that is the end result of a God who has purchased you back from the dominion of darkness. He's adopted you into his family. He's welcomed you into spirit-filled life. God has redeemed you for his purposes. We are to enjoy him, announce him, invite him into every area and every arena of our lives. When we give in to gluttony, we light a match to the temple that God's spirit inhabits. Here's what Paul says to Timothy in the church in Ephesus in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Your body is an instrument, not an ornament. You were created on purpose 
for a purpose. You were redeemed out of sin so that God could use you to accomplish his kingdom purpose in the world. Here's maybe the most helpful way to frame up how we might practically tackle gluttony. And it's this idea of willpower. That's what we all want more of, right? If I just have more willpower, I'd be better at controlling these desires. If I just had more willpower, I could accomplish more. I'd get up more early. I'd exercise more often. I would, I'd eat less, all these kinds of things. But here's the thing that we do with willpower that I'm not even sure we're aware of. We don't use willpower. We use won't power. I won't eat another piece of cake. I won't stay up late again tonight. I, I won't skip the gym today. We, we use won't power thinking that it's the same thing, and it's not. See, won't, won't power won't get us to the place that we need to go. Willpower is different. Here's what I will do. I, I will go to bed early tonight. I, I will wake up early in the morning and exercise. I will eat a healthy breakfast. I will spend time with my kids. I, I, I will pray over my family before they leave the house. I will talk to that coworker about Jesus. I, I will be wise about what I consume at my lunch hour. I will go home intentionally to shepherd and love on my family. I will take, like, you see the difference. You're planning your day around a simple idea. It has a gravity to it, and it's this, what pleases God? The contrast of willpower as opposed to won't power is totally different. You're not your own. You were bought at a price, but you're also not on your own. God's spirit is alive in you. Here's what Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That salvation carries with it a spirit of God implanted within you. Here's what it says. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright godly lives in this present age. The opposite of gluttony is self-control. Gluttony is the worship of food. It is an oversimplification to say that gluttony is overeating, because at times, that is encouraged and celebrated in the Bible. Here's what God tells his people to do in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Spend the money on whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong, deep, strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Wait a second. God, what, what are you saying? Feast? Indulge? Go crazy? Yes. God is a God of joy. God is a God of love, desiring his people to enjoy him with one another. But here's a critical question. Am I feasting in celebration or in isolation? Am I acknowledging the Lord's goodness with his people or am I feeling the absence of his presence and trying to fill it with food or whatever else? came across a, a quote from a monk. His name is Father John the Short, which I just love. If you're looking for a good dog name, that might be a good one. Father John the Short. Here's what he says. If a king wants to take a city whose citizens are hostile, he first captures the food and water of the inhabitants of the city, and when they are starving, he subdues them. So it is with gluttony. If a man is earnest in fasting and hunger, the enemies which trouble his soul will grow weak. You're not your own, but you're also not on your own. 
Don't make the mistake of dismissing sin because it's socially acceptable. Tell yourself a better story. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. So to summarize this morning, we need to realize, realize that you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Honor God with your body. How you live matters. You need to repent, and that word simply means to change your mind or to change direction. The things that you have been pursuing and doing, you have to step in a new direction. Realize, repent, and then you need to replace. Things that you have been filling yourself with, you need to find a different way to fill yourself, and I would encourage you, yes, we're in church today, I'd encourage you to find it here and here in the worship, in the rightly centered gravity on God who has an ability to hold all of our lives in orbit around him. And it's there that we'll find a life that's flourishing, that's fulfilling, and that doesn't leave us feeling more empty. Let's stand and worship him today.